0: On September 17, 1796, I'm preaching in a cave. On September 17, 1796, George Washington gave his farewell address to the nation. At this point, Washington had been in public service politically, militarily for a long time, He had been in public service for 45 years, and this was toward the end of his second term as president, and he was nearing the end of his life. Little known fact, at least I didn't know it until I read it in a book this week, that this farewell address, it's several pages long, it would probably take 20 minutes or more to read, is read before the Senate and the House every February 22nd. In this farewell address, Washington warns against foreign entanglements and against factious party spirits. And he also calls on the country to virtue. Here's one paragraph of his farewell address. He says, observe good faith and justice toward all nations. Cultivate peace and harmony with all. Religion and morality enjoin this conduct, and and can it be that good policy does not equally enjoin it? It will be worthy of a free, enlightened, and at no distant period a great nation to give to mankind the magnanimous and too novel example of a people always guided by an exalted justice and benevolence. Who can doubt that in the course of time and things, the fruit of such a plan would richly repay any temporary advantages that might be lost by a steady adherence to it. Can it be that providence and he writes that the capital P has not connected the permanent felicity of a nation with its virtue. The experiment at least is recommended by every sentiment which ennobles human nature. Alas, it is rendered impossible by its vices. A number of things strike me in that paragraph. First of all, they used a lot of big words back then that we would not fit into our soundbite culture. And how much he emphasizes what he calls this exalted justice and benevolence. And certainly the American experiment has not always lived up to those ideals but in many times and places it has he enjoins on the nation as part of his farewell address that they would be virtuous suppose you were near the end of your life and you knew it what what final words would you want to leave suppose you had an opportunity to give your farewell address. Most of us can remember, probably not too long ago, having been to a funeral. And you hear many eulogies, and people extol the virtues of the one who is deceased. Sometimes wonder if they were here, what might they want to say to all of their friends and family? gathered perhaps it's the very thing that people are commending but maybe not what would you say if you knew you have six months or maybe six years what would you want to convey to your family what would you want to say to this church we said okay we're going to have an open mic night and you have 10 minutes what last words what exhortation what encouragement What would your farewell address sound like? There are a number of farewell addresses in the Bible, whether we've picked them out or not. Jacob has one at the end of Genesis. Moses has another one in Deuteronomy 33. Joshua in Joshua 24. Paul in Acts 20 when he leaves the Ephesian elders at Miletus. And then again in 2 Timothy. And Jesus has a very lengthy farewell address in the upper room. John chapter 13, all the way through until he's praying his prayer in the garden in John chapter 17. And in his farewell address, he teaches them about the Trinity. Just what you all would share in your farewell address. He teaches them to love one another and talks about the coming Holy Spirit. Peter gives his farewell address in this book that we've been studying, Second Peter. If you're not there already... Open your Bibles to 2 Peter. It's page 1018. This is his farewell address. Now, we have not known that up to this point, but in our text this evening, verses 12 through 15, we see very clearly that this letter is his swan song. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it is right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter knows that he's about to die. He says he realizes the putting off of his body will be soon. If you look in verses 13 and 14 in the ESV, it renders it body. You see, there's a little uh, footnote eight there, a little superscript eight next to body in verse 13. And you look down and it says Greek is tent skene, the, the word for tabernacle or tent. He says that I am in this tent. And then in verse 14, you know that the putting off of my tent is coming soon. And there's something to this this metaphor. Think of a tent. Now, if you like camping as much as I do, you, you don't want to think about a tent, but you all think about fifth wheels and campers. But you know, think about a tent. What What is a tent? It's temporary. It's weak. It's destructible. I remember After I graduated from high school, spending the better part of a week at Holland State Park in the middle of the summer with my friends in a tent, and these big storms would roll through. And I was probably 45 pounds lighter then than I am now. And I thought we might just blow away, me and the tent, Barreling down until we crash into the water. I did not feel real secure in a tent when you hear the sirens. It was a couple weeks ago we heard tornado sirens here. I just kept working. Figure I'm in a church, right? But you hear tornado sirens. You never hear on you know the little crawler on the bottom of the screen. Please immediately seek shelter in a tent. No, you get out of the tent, get out of the trailer park, find some place, go in the basement, away from mundo. secure. A tent is weak. He says this body is a tent. You don't expect to live your whole life in a tent. A few times I've spent days in a tent, I've thought, I'm very glad I do not spend my whole life in a tent. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1. Paul says something similar. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So you compare heaven is secure. It is an eternal dwelling. It is a strong building. This body is a tent. Now, don't misunderstand me that this means the body is bad. The body is good. We know that that because God made the physical world and it was good and we're going to have resurrection bodies. But these present earthly bodies are only temporary. And it is a good metaphor for us to remember when we get older, we all get older. Whenever someone turns 30 or 40 or 60 or 70 and you get one of those dates with, the, with a zero at the end of it, and maybe you feel a little discouraged and always think, well, it beats the alternative. <laughs> but it actually doesn't. <laughs> I said that to someone just this past week. They said, well, yeah. I said, well, for us, it beats the alternative. <laughs> because when you when you go to heaven, you have finally something secure. And as you age and we all get older and Bodies start doing funny things they didn't do before. You realize this this is my tent. And I was not meant to live in this tent forever. I'm not losing my inheritance. As I can no longer walk or run or jump as well. And as you all can talk about creaks and aches and some very serious pains. Hard to get older. You think, I'm not losing my palace. I'm not losing my reward. I'm packing up my tent. And it has served well for a time, but it is not meant to last forever. And might there even be some small consolation when we know those who die too early that they're getting a home sooner than we might think? It's not at all to be very cliche about it and get over death. Death is an enemy. One of my few experiences camping in a tent. I I think I'm sharing with you all two of them in my my life. Uh, In college, friends and I went up north to the along the Manistee River. It was just beautiful, and it was perfect weather, was 70 degrees and Loaded up and no, I didn't do any fishing or but just walking and felt like sort of a, a man for once and had to get water out of the river. And, and we, the trail, I don't know how many, 20, 30, I don't know how many miles long it was, but we were going to be out there for a few days to go around and, and come back. And we must have made good time because we didn't do anything but just walk. And we, we, we got done earlier than we thought and, and none of us was sort of pining that. No one said, well, "I wish." Maybe, well, we're here back at the cars. You want to just sleep in the tent for another night? No. The first thing we did was load up, and we drove to Pizza Hut and loaded up, I think, on a buffet. So that's sort of what I do. I camp for a couple of days, go to Pizza Hut, ruin every sort of physical exertion that I just did. But when we got done, and we were done a day early, and one less day outside, one less day in the tent, I thought that's okay. I'm all right to be done with my tent a little early. I'm all right to go to a solid house a little sooner. Might that be some encouragement to us when we come to the end of our lives? We know those who do. You're packing up your tent. You're getting a much better house. Peter says here, I'm about to put off my tent and it's coming soon. Now, how does he know that he's going to die? He's writing this letter in the 60s A.D. And so he's probably 50 or 60. If you figure around 30 A.D. when Jesus died, he was, you know, 20s at the earliest, at the youngest, but maybe 30s or even older. So he's in his 50s or 60s back when the average lifespan was in your 40s. So he's an old man. And so he can figure that his time is coming soon. Plus, it is very likely that the persecutions under Nero had begun. The great... Fire of Rome in 64 A.D., Nero blamed on the Christians and he used that to intensify persecution. And so Peter knew that he was old. There was persecution. And he also understands that the knowledge of this death that is coming his way is in keeping with the word of the Lord. If you turn in your Bible back to John chapter 21... John 21. Now, John, the book of John was probably not written yet, but Peter was there and he remembers the Lord speaking these words to him in verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then John adds, this He said to show by what kind of death He was to glorify God. As a young man, Jesus speaks this word to Peter that one day you will be taken where you do not want to go and you will glorify Me with your death. He told him that he would be a martyr. I can't think of... of Much weightier things for the Lord to speak right into your life. Oh, by the way, you'll be a martyr. And Peter's been living with that. He's been ministering faithfully in that. And now, as he's old and the persecution with Nero is probably escalating, he realizes yes, what the Lord has spoken to me, now is my time. And I've come to the end. So what would you say to your fellow believers when your time has come? Good luck. Uh, do your best. Can you name part of the, the church after me? I mean, what, what would you say on your way out? If you are living your life right and have been faithful, then the last thing that you have to say should be the same thing that you've already been saying. Reminder. Look at verse 12. I intend always to remind you. Verse 13. To stir you up by way of reminder. Verse 15. After my departure, I want you to be able at any time to recall these things. He's not telling them anything new. He's giving them a reminder. And it says in verse 13, a reminder of these qualities. Literally, it says these things, these things, if you look up at verse eight, you'll notice another one of these little translation footnotes for if these qualities and then you go to the bottom of the page and you see under the six there Greek, these things also verses nine, ten and twelve. So the Greek word is just. It's actually just the word for these. So you sort of translators are, well, what are the these? And in the context of verse eight, it's these qualities, these virtues of knowledge and self-control. So in verse 12, when Peter says, I want to remind you of these things, he is thinking most particularly of these qualities of godliness. He says, I want to remind you of the sort of people that you ought to be as Christians, but I think that these things can also be broadened to look at all of these things that Peter includes in this letter. If you just sort of do a quick scan through the letter, you see that in addition to a need for holiness, and in the very next section of verse 16, he talks about the inspiration of Scripture. He goes on to talk about the danger of false teaching in chapter 2, the reality of Judgment. Then in chapter 3, the return of the Lord Jesus. These are his reminders. And all of these, as we'll see, are connected to his exhortation to be godly. Because what he's saying is true, the inspiration of Scripture, you need to be godly. Because judgment is real, you ought to be godly. Because false teaching is dangerous, you ought to be godly. Because the Lord will return to judge the living and the dead, you ought to be godly. Look in chapter three. He gives a summary of his reminder. So we sort of the the narrow summary in verse 12, these qualities. And now here's the bigger picture. Chapter three. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember. And he mentions two things. The predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. This is number one. I want you to remember the predictions of the holy prophets. The promised coming of Christ and the promised return of Christ, where he will destroy the ungodly. Chapter 3, verse 7. So the false teachers will get their just deserts, and so will all those who live an ungodly life. Remember that, and then remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your. Apostles, the commandments to be pure and self-controlled and blameless and upright. Peter is not messing around here. He says very clearly over and over again, if you are living a life not in keeping with your Christian profession, you should be fearful of the Lord's return. I like this phrase here through your apostles. In other words, I'm reminding you what you've already heard through the apostles and do not deviate from it. He says the same thing back in chapter one, verse 12. "Remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth. The notion of being established in the truth is what separates liberal Christians from evangelical Christians I I don't use those as sort of you know curse word that's there are people call themselves liberal Christians I'm not thinking politically here but it's a it's a type of Christianity I think Christianity is putting it generously liberals liberals find much that is helpful in the Bible, but yet would think that truth with a capital T cannot be put in human words. And so all of our speaking of truth is but a feeble human attempt to describe an ineffable God in our experience of him. And so traditional liberals have often used metaphors like the kernel and the husk. So there's a little kernel of truth, and then in each new culture and age, there's a new husk that gets put around it. Or there is this experience of God where we have this absolute dependence upon God, and that experience of Him gets gets variously translated in different cultures and in all sorts of different ways. Or there are uh, springs on a trampoline, and you bounce, and the point is just that You bounce and the springs can be interchangeable. On the other hand, evangelicals, which is what I would describe us, believe that God has spoken in a way that we can understand such that there is a deposit of articulated, understandable, transferable truth. That must be protected and preserved. I know when, it, when you get in, into these labels, liberals and conservatives, and they mean different things, but uh, we ought to be conservatives, surely in this sense, that we believe there is something to be conserved. Now, that, that's how I would use the term theologically. There is a truth, there is a deposit that needs to be conserved. There is something that was true then, is true now, will be true a hundred years from now. So we are established in the truth, which means we have heard the truth, we've believed the truth, we've accepted it, and now the task is not to deviate from it. There's an excellent piece in Christianity Today, I don't know, maybe five years ago now. And it was, it was written by uh, an Episcopalian and writing sort of in the context of their theological struggles. And the piece was called The Ecstatic Heresy. And that ecstatic language actually comes from Paul Tillich, who was a very, very liberal theologian of the last century. And in this piece he argues very deftly the difference between Orthodox theology and what he calls this ecstatic heresy, that in this ecstatic heresy, you do not believe that you really can know truth or appropriate truth or put it in human language. But all you do is variously describe your experiences of God in different ways versus an Orthodox understanding, which believes God has actually spoken words have meaning we cannot fully know God we cannot exhaust our knowledge of God but he can speak to us in meaningful ways so that there is a truth that can be preserved Uh, uh, before Christmas I was I wrote a, a blog on our I have a blog that I do most every day and then there's one that I do with some other people in the RCA and I just put something on this other blog about the virgin birth and about how vital the virgin birth is to orthodoxy and to our faith and to scripture's testimony. And there was a whole lot of comments after that. And one of the strains from one individual which was questioning the virgin birth. Now, he did it in such a way said, I'm just throwing out a question. Just, just a, a question, just want you to know. And so then when I came back, he said, all I was doing was asking a question. I said, no, you, you were making a statement with your question. But his point was this. He said, what's really important to me is not so much that Mary was a virgin, but the part where she says, with God, all things are possible. That, that, that's, that's, that's the point for me, when, when, when the Lord says that. So the point of the virgin birth is, is not whether or not she actually was technically a virgin, but that God can do amazing things in amazing ways. And As I tried to you know, futilely argue in a paragraph in the comments section, I said, y- yes, but did anyone in the first century understand it that way? Did anyone writing in the Scriptures, did anyone in the early church understand? That they actually believed that Mary was a woman who had not had Intimacy with a man. Well, I don't know if that was or wasn't the case, he said. What matters to me is that God can do impossible things. That that is this sort of ecstatic heresy. What, What matters is a sort of just a lesson that I can draw from it. And whether or not God has spoken clearly or plainly is beside the point. Peter says you are established. You have the truth. You're rooted in it He wants to warn them because it is dangerously easy to lose the truth. How? Well, there are many ways. Find new and attractive ideas come along. It's possible to to be, be lax with definitions. And it's also possible to be overly rigid with theological definitions. That is another danger. But the natural drift is away from Orthodoxy, because it is always easier to allow more than less. It is also very easy for us to get lazy with our holiness. See, it's not just about, well, are we getting our doctrine right? How are we living? Are we living out the truth? And one of the things that happens, see, this, this life and doctrine are always connected. It, it, if you start living in this wrong way, you better believe that sooner or later, a change in your theology will come along because there is always this pressure in the human heart to find a worldview that justifies the way you're living. and The way you're thinking. And So one leads to the other and perhaps most common, we simply forget the truth. Our, our memory slips, the truth fades, sharpness gets dull and so we need reminders think of in Peter's day no one had this and not just because it hadn't all been written but most of them couldn't read books hadn't been invented there were scrolls, They, they didn't have Bibles in their homes they had no ancient creeds that were written down that they could consult, they did not have believe it or not, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology on their shelf to just sort of pull off. And what does Grudem have to say? They had none of that. They had to be remembered. They had to be reminded. And we need reminders just as much. Even though we have books and we have lots of history and lots of information and we have multiple Bibles lying around our house, our problem is too much information. They're always bombarding you. New images, new ideas, New information a thousand times a day. And if you do not think you need to be reminded of the truth, then you are very, very close to losing it. If you would indulge me to quote from myself for a moment, just this paragraph. The only thing more difficult than finding the truth is not losing it. What starts out as new and precious becomes plain and old. What begins a thrilling discovery becomes a rote exercise. What provokes one generation to sacrifice and passion becomes in the next generation a cause for rebellion and apathy. The people in this country least excited about any sort of doctrinal precision or reformed theology are folks who grew up in the RCA and the CRC in Grand Rapids, Michigan. (laughs) They had it. Now, maybe they got shoved down their throats. Maybe they didn't see it lived out. I don't. All sorts of reasons. The only thing harder than finding the truth is not losing it. Why is it that people who grow up in the church are often less articulate about their faith than the new Christian? Why is it that those who grow up with creeds and confessions are usually the ones who hate them the most. Perhaps it is because truth is like the tip of your nose. It is hardest to see when it is right in front of you. The chief theological task now facing the Western Church is not to reinvent or to be relevant, but to remember. To remember the truth, the faith once delivered to the saints. To remember the truths that spark reformation and revival and regeneration. I hope one of the reasons you come back on Sunday night is to be reminded. I mean, certainly, you—you many of you have heard me hundreds of times, and you know the inflections in my voice and the things I do with my hands. And I mean, all I came up with today is two stories about tenting. That's the best I could do that maybe you hadn't heard before. But I take some comfort in the fact that we both need reminders. And while there are some preachers who say the same things in the same boring ways, there are just as many who are looking for all sorts of New things. You know who gets bored with preaching first? The preachers. They run off after other things. You know, uh, any of you who have been around for a while here at URC know that uh, Tom and I have different personalities, but I think most of you would say that for the most part, what was preached here. In 1970 is the same truth here in 2010 by God's grace and by God's continuing grace will be, however many of us are around in 2050, the same truth proclaimed here. We need to be reminded. The scriptures are true. Jesus is God. We are forgiven at the cross. We are justified by faith. We must show our faith with good deeds and holy lives. We must share our faith with others. We pray. We read the Bible. We believe Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. We believe hell is terrible. We believe heaven is better than we can imagine. And we know that God is all in all. We cannot hear it too many times. You cannot hear too often the gospel. We are sinners saved by God's grace. And and we cannot hear too many times what it means to live out the implications of the gospel in obedience to Christ. We need reminders. A friend of mine, Greg Gilbert, has a a new book that just came out. It's called What is the Gospel? I I don't think it's on our book table. We should get it. It's just a little book. I would commend it to you. What is the gospel? And he sent to me this week, he said, what do you what do you think he sent to me and some of our friends? What do you think about this review? It was just a little paragraph review of his book. And one reviewer said, quote, Greg Gilbert has absolutely nothing new to propose about the good news. And Greg said, is that a compliment or not? And we decided it was. I don't know how I meant it. That's a compliment. You have absolutely nothing new to say about the gospel. Same truth. Let me leave you with two concluding thoughts. Number one. The best way to leave a legacy is to promote the truth, to promote the truth. The truth will outlast all of us. Look at verse 15. I will make every effort that after my departure, when I'm gone, when the tents. Put aside. Back up in the box. I'm in heaven in my eternal dwelling. When I'm gone, I want you to be able to recall these things. And that's why he wrote a letter. That's why he reminded them. And isn't it amazing by the the gift of a book that Peter still teaches? These things are still being recalled. Recalled. Will the things that you are most concerned about in life matter in 50 years or 50 days? And maybe you think, well, that's easy for you to say, Pastor, you're you're a preacher, you preach, yeah, of course that's going to matter. I sell hot dogs. Okay, what if you sell hot dogs? You say, well, that's not going to matter. Well, how do you treat people? How do you go about your work? What is the motivation for what you do? There's all sorts of underlines. And you may say, well, hot dogs, hot dogs. There's truth somewhere underneath hot dogs. If you know how to do it and how to find it. And if we want to leave a legacy, we have to promote the truth because you and I will be forgotten and little will be remembered about our lives. But the church will continue. And the truth will still be the truth. We can decry institutions all day long, but it is the institution of the church that continues and is, as Paul says in First Timothy, the pillar and support of the truth. You will not leave a legacy if your life is solely spent in trivialities or in Dealing and worried about sports and politics and entertainment. Give people eternal truth and you will have a legacy. Here's the second concluding thought. I go back to my opening question. If you knew the end of your life were near. You had a farewell address. What would you say? No doubt you would focus on what is most essential, most timeless, most enduring, most critical to your hearers whether it's your family or your church or your friends so my question is what are you doing now to speak those words that you would want to speak if you knew you were about to die maybe you'd want to tell people that you love them that you're thankful for them don't wait Maybe you'd want to warn them of dangers. Maybe you'd want to point them to Christ. Give an unabashed, unashamed declaration to your neighbor. Look, I know I sound funny, but you need to know Jesus. What would you say if you knew the end were coming? And are you saying those things now? Now look, it's unrealistic that we would live every day as if it were your last. People say that. You can't do that. You wouldn't go to work. You'd eat donuts. You'd have mozzarella cheese sticks. I would. I mean, I'd, just, I'd be so put on 50 pounds. Kevin's living every day like it's his last. So you can't, you can't do that. But we ought to be in the habit of reminding each other often of the things that will outlast us because the truth will outlive all of us. So remind each other of these things. Let's pray. Thanks, Lord, for Your Word. For faithful teachers in our lives, parents, pastors, books, friends, anyone who will remind us The things that were true yesterday and will be today and forever. Oh, guard us, protect us, protect this body from ever deviating from the things that we have been established in. We're always only one generation from losing the gospel. Keep us firm and steadfast, committed to your word. Make us lovers of the truth and lovers of people. In Christ's name, Amen.